be with you again, as I said earlier, on this first Sunday of the new year. If you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And um, now that it's Christmas is behind us and New Year's is behind us, I trust that everyone's home is uh, back to order, right? You've spent some time taking down and uh, decluttering and putting things away. You've uh, had plenty of time to remove all the excess packages and wrapping papers and cartons and whatever was there and left over from Christmas morning. You've had time to take down the Christmas tree and all the decorations and, and uh, your husband or son or someone probably has stashed those away. And I know that's such a sexist thing to say. Uh, I'm not very PC, but that's the way it is in my home. That's what we did yesterday. So I'm just speaking out of personal experience. And I was the one who uh, on a January day had to go into the attic and it was hot in the attic. It was something wrong with the whole picture. But uh, it's so nice to be able to have a house that's not cluttered with all those things. Or I shouldn't say cluttered. That just seems so mean and, and uh, non-Christmassy. Uh, um, so uh, full is a better term. Our houses are now less full of the things. But uh, I don't know if, if your house is like my house, but on Christmas morning, it's like the Tasmanian devil has just shown up in the front room and, and just kind of did his thing twirling around. And the only thing left is shredded wrapping paper and boxes. And it's, uh, it's just a mess. And in all of that mess, it's easy. I've caught myself a time or two over the years. Uh, as I'm grabbing all of the stuff that I think is trash, I'm actually end up grabbing things that I need, perhaps a, uh, a, a gift, perhaps a kid, uh, a manual, and I'm on my way to the, to the trash with it, and I realize what I have. And so um, you don't want to do that, especially the manuals. All the other things you may want to sweep out with the, with the trash, but you don't want to lose the manuals. I'm a manual guy. Anybody out here, if, if you get a new thing, you read the manual. Raise your hand. This is participation. This is a new year. We can do this, right? So the rest of you just wing it? There's like five people that raise their hands. You just wing it? So all your stuff in your house is messed up. It doesn't work. Is that what you're telling me? Well, I'm a guy, and I, I'm not, usually I can figure things out, but I still not necessarily read the manual. I at least skim every manual of everything I buy. Um, and I just want to, especially if i got to put it together, I will look through it, make sure I know exactly how to, to program it, how to install it, how to uh, c- put it together, uh, construct it. Uh, I just want to know what's going on in there because if I don't know those things, I'm not going to be as sane as I need to later on, especially on a day like Christmas, Christmas afternoon when you're trying to figure out how to put things together. If I've already thrown away and perhaps, like I always do, go outside and burn all that stuff right off the bat and get rid of it, then I I, I need that for my sanity. And so I always read it. Why do I read it? Because I want to know the next step I need to take. And I believe the same is true for us spiritually. We always want to know... What is that next step? And so what we're going to do today and next week and the following week is we're going to work through the next steps, as we call it, here at Red Lane. What are the next steps that every single person needs to take in their spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? I I believe we want to know. I believe we need to know what the next steps are for us to take. And, And thankfully, the Bible answers those questions that we have. The Bible tells us what our next step should be. It gives us concrete reasons and answers for these questions that we have. And so the way we talk about it here is we say it this way. We believe people should come. We believe people should grow. And we believe people should 
go. Now, I don't want you to get tripped up with the idea of come because the Bible does tell us to go. That's why that's part of that discipleship process. So we're to take the gospel to people, but the whole idea of us taking the gospel to them is so that they come to Christ and eventually get connected with his church. And so if you will uh, look at the screen with me, and um, I don't know what's happened to our screen today. There we go. All right. On the screen there, uh, you will see in just a moment, you'll see the diagram that I want you to see. Because if we look at our process, it's three simple circles. We want you to come. We want you to grow. We want you to go. So once you go to that slide, sweetie. That's my daughter running the slides, by the way. <laughs> there we go. Come, grow, and go. And that's what we want to see. That's what we want every single person to do. We want them to come to Christ. We want them to grow in Christ. And then we want them to go and serve with Christ others, the body of Christ and those who still need to come to Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today and the next two Sundays are these things. This morning, I want to speak to just the, the first process, the first step in the process, come. Come to Christ and come to his church. We see this played out in, in the early church. We see God working in the early church, and we see these three things taking place. In fact, I told you earlier to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, I believe, but in Acts chapter 2, we see the new church in its, in its uh, infancy. We see that it's been birthed, and we see it beginning to now grow, and we see them going to others. And so we're going to use Acts chapter 2 as our springboard for the next three Sundays as we look at these processes and how they play out in our life. Luke here, as he's writing this, this history, this account of the birth and the growth of the early church, he begins in chapter 1 with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. There in chapter 1, Jesus and his disciples, they go out on the, on the hillside there on Mount Olivet, and Jesus gives the church their marching orders. He says that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so he tells them they're to be their, his witnesses to their neighbors and to the nations. That's what the church is to be about. That's what Christians are to be about. And then Luke goes on to tell us that 10 days after Christ's ascension there on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers, the 120 who are together praying and, and waiting just as Jesus had told them. The Holy Spirit comes with a mighty rushing wind, with divided tongues. He begins to rest upon them, and they begin to speak in other languages as, as the Spirit gives them utterance. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem during this time? You've come for a festival. You've come for a religious experience to worship the Lord as a devout Jew, as we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, and then while there, the Spirit of God begins to rest on certain people in such a way that they're beginning, beginning to speak in languages they don't speak, but a language that you're able to understand because it's your native tongue, because you come from a neighboring nation and a neighboring dialect. And so they're seeing all this thing. They're seeing these miracles take place, and it's an amazing spectacle causing all of Jerusalem to listen and to pay attention. Peter then, when everyone was wondering what this was, some were even beginning to scoff. Peter, the apostle, stands up, and with the other disciples, the other apostles, begin to proclaim the gospel to the Jews who were there in Jerusalem for this festival. 
He described the facts of Jesus' birth. He talked about his crucifixion. He, he described and, and, and gave uh, details about the resurrection of Jesus. And all of that he used to conclude that God the Father, there in verse 36, is, has made Jesus, the one who was crucified, the one who was buried, the one who has been resurrected, God the Father has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. Therefore, if he's Lord and he's the Messiah, we must listen, we must Take notice. Look with me and read along with me, beginning in verse 37. <clears throat> Luke says, now when they heard this, that's the Jews that were there in Jerusalem who are listening to Peter preach. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It was a pretty good day in Jerusalem. God showed up, God showed out, God began to change lives, and what happened when it was all said and done on that first day, that particular day, was that 3,000 people heard the gospel, responded in faith and repentance to the gospel, and the church was birthed. You see, these devout Jews who were in Jerusalem came to connect with God. They came for the Feast of Weeks. They came for the Festival of Pentecost. This was the second of three annual feasts, and while they were there, the Holy Spirit opened their ears to hear God's Word in their own languages. This is a miracle in and of itself. The fact that these brothers and sisters began to proclaim the gospel, and they began to speak in languages, or at least speak in, in Hebrew, their native language, but others were hearing them in their own native language. We don't know, and it really doesn't matter. What we do know is the Spirit of God gave them utterance, and the others heard what they were saying, and they responded in faith and repentance. But these devout Jews came to the city of Jerusalem. They came seeking a religious experience. But I want you to make sure that you catch what's going on here. As these are coming for a religious experience, the Holy Spirit of God comes for relationship. He says that religion is not enough. Religion is not good enough. Religion is not what you were created for. The Spirit of God breaks out and brings to culmination all that Jesus had been doing and working and providing calling these people into a relationship with the God who created them. And so Peter here stands before the Jews and calls them to find in Christ the answer to their questions. These people had questions, we have questions. And Peter calls them and says, the answer to all of life's questions, the quench for the thirst of your soul, the object of the faith that you're seeking, that is all found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so this passage here, as we look at it, reveals to us the most needed things in a person's life. Let me give you two great needs in every person's life. The first great need is this, to know Christ, to know Christ. The greatest need in your life, the greatest need in the lives of those that were there in Jerusalem on this particular day, the greatest need was for them and for us to know Christ. Why would I say that? How can I say that? I, I use this verse often 
Uh, I allude to it often, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul there tells us that we were made by God and we were made for God. In this particular passage, Paul is arguing for the divinity of Jesus Christ. He's saying he's not just a prophet, he's not just a good teacher, he wasn't just a good moral person, he wasn't even just a martyr who laid his life down on for, uh, for others. He was, in fact, God of very God. And so he says in verse 16, for by him, by Jesus in, this, in essence, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were made by him and for him. We were created for God. And so that tells me that the greatest need in my life and the greatest need in your life and the greatest need for those here in this story, in this time in history, was for them to know Christ. It was who they were created for. There's no greater discovery that you could ever make in your life than the discovery of faith in Jesus Christ. It is what you were created for. You were created for nothing else. When I think about being created for something, it reminds me of a, a wonderful experience I had a few years ago. I had an opportunity to fly to Nebraska. This was years, years back when we lived in Alabama. And so me and five friends, we got on the plane. We flew to Nebraska. And, and uh, for three days, we went pheasant hunting with an outfitter out there. And it was absolutely awesome. It was in late January. There was snow on the ground. It was frigid. I mean, just frigid, like 10 degrees while hunting and 20 below at night. It was frigid. But it was fun. I'm telling you, it was awesome. We killed 359 birds in three days. Obviously, we were hunting with an outfitter who's putting them out. So if you're thinking we're poachers, we paid for every one of those birds, right? It was awesome. Um, and so if you're, well, I'm, let's just stop on my PC thing. But um, <laughs> if you don't like what I just said, I apologize. I'm a hunter. Um, I, I believe that uh, Gen Genesis 1 gives me authority over birds, and so I took that authority <laughs> and very literally. Um, I just lost half the crowd. So we had a great time. Here's what struck me most intriguing about the whole week. Not the fact that we had good food and we had good camaraderie and how we killed a lot of birds and we had a lot of fun. And it, it, One of the more intriguing and more exciting things about those three days hunting was the dogs we got to work with. If you've ever bird hunted, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We, we were hunting with German short-haired pointers, and they were bred. They were created to hunt. They were created to hunt upland game birds. And so that's what they live for. If you've got a, a, a bird dog, you know that they're hyper, they are high strong, and if you just try to keep them in a crate or in a small room and they don't get, they're not able to get out and do things, they will destroy everything you have and they will drive you nuts. But if they're out there in their element, that for which they were created for, they are absolutely phenomenal to watch back and forth, running, never get tired. I mean, we're walking up and down all these hills and valleys in this prairie land and Sometimes treading through 12, 15 inches of snow where it's kind of drifted. I mean, it, it, was, it was tiresome at times, but they never got tired. Why? Because that's what they were created to do. They lived to smell that bird and to get on point. And it was awesome when they did. That bird would flush, and then it would come crashing down. If I was shooting, some of the other guys missed a lot. They're created for that. I would never lie in the pulpit. See, these dogs were created to do that. And I'm telling you this morning, you and I were created for one thing, to know Christ. There's a second great need in every person's life, and that is to know Christ's body. Uh, we see the church here being birthed. We see people of God coming together around the gospel. And so when we think about this 
concept. We, we, we can call it community. And community is a very intriguing uh, concept in the Bible. And what we see as we look through the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we see this concept of community being progressively revealed as the storyline of Scripture goes on. Glimmers of it are given early on in the Old Testament as God creates humanity, as God creates the family unit, as he calls out a people to himself in the nation of Israel. And then we find its full expression as we move to the New Testament and we see the early church being birthed and growing and and walking in biblical community. All of it that that salvation in history has been pointing to finds its culmination in the church. In fact, it's often likened to the composition of a body or a house in the New Testament, Paul's letters especially. In fact, Paul expounds this community and the purpose of this community in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And I just want you to listen to this. Here he's going to allude to the body or the, uh, the church being the house of God. He says here in verse 19, So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, in creation, Adam was not created to be in isolation with himself. If you're reading with us in the Bible this year, reading through it, you were in Genesis chapter 2 just a couple days ago, and you remember the story there, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and Genesis 2 especially, where God creates Adam, he puts him in the garden, and he gives him a task to do. What does he do? God says, Adam, I want you to go, and I want you to name all that there is. Name the animals, and the Bible tells us that two by two they came before Adam, and he named them. I believe in that process, God was using that process to stir within Adam the understanding and the knowledge that there was something missing in his creation, even when God had already pronounced that this is good. What's missing? There was no one like himself. He had no helper suitable for him. And so he realizes this. God puts him to sleep. He does the first surgery, takes his rib, and from that rib, he creates uh, creates Eve for Adam. And so here we see God showing Adam that in this perfect, wonderful creation, he was not complete because he didn't have community with someone like himself. This initial community finds its full expression in the New Testament church. As the Bible story goes on, just as Sinclair Ferguson points out, listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says in his his book on this subject. He says, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. In other words, Jesus didn't come up with a church after the fall saying, we've got to fix this problem. No, everything was pointing to where we are today. It's not an accident of history, Ferguson says. On the contrary, the church is God's new community for his purpose conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in a future eternity. It is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, that is to call out of the world a people for his own glory. You are created for God, and you are created to be in community with other human beings who at the same time have a relationship with God. Look at it as like a triangle. I'm, in, I'm here, I'm in a relationship with other believers, and we're both in relationship with God. It's the same as your marriage is supposed to be. And so we see in creation 
that humanity was created to be in relationship, as I said, with both God and other people. But what's happened? Sin's happened. Sin's broken. Sin has marred that relationship and relationships. But thankfully, in Christ, both can be restored. That's why what we see in the New Testament through the gospel is that because of the brokenness that sin has created, everything is made new in Christ. And so we find our fullest and we find our most complete sense of community within the body of Christ, which is a unified body of believers made one together in Christ. You see, we can have community in other types of relationships, right? Sports teams have camaraderie. Uh, 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 Social clubs have uh, uh, community. All of those things, there's an element of community there, yes. But there's one thing that's missing, and that is a relationship with God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the church is the full expression of that. And so the first step in what we call our discipleship process is for people to come, to come to Christ and to come to his church. This idea is is all about connection. That's what it's about. We believe every person needs to connect with Christ. And as we look back here at Acts chapter 2, this call for connection to Christ is exactly what we see Peter preaching. In verse 36, he says that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Therefore, it's imperative that every single person come into relationship with him. Uh, I want you to notice a few things here in this passage uh, this morning. First of all, I want you to notice how they came to Christ. Notice that they came through the conviction of the Spirit. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the rest of the brothers, brothers, what shall we do? He's, Luke tells us they were cut to the heart. That's an interesting expression. If you know your Bible, it helps us or it quickly will take our mind to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where the Bible tells us that the Word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword that divides to the joint and marrow. It cuts straight to the heart in our lives. And that's what's going on here. You see, the Word of God always cuts. It always slices deep to our hearts. And this cutting in first pain and deep anguish, obviously, anytime you cut something or get a cut, there is a concept or this understanding that it's going to be painful. It's going to be full of anguish. So what is it that's cutting them to the heart? Well, it's the enormity of their guilt that came home to their hearts, that that became apparent before their eyes. They were under conviction of the Spirit. So what is this conviction of? Well, it's of their guilt. They understand that they are sinful. They understand that there is sin. They are cut to the heart over the concept and the reality that we are sinners. It's kind of like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where he saw all of this and he saw the wickedness in his own life. And he says, I am undone. That's what's going on here. There was also conviction of their responsibility. This was a personal sin for them. They say, brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, in in response to the messages you're sharing, in response to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done there on the cross and and the, the reality of why he was on the cross, in response to that, brothers, what shall we do? It's a personal responsibility that we all must feel. And then there's the conviction of powerlessness that comes. This was an irreparable sin. Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? What what is happening here is these devout Jews are realizing that there's nothing they can do to get themselves out of this situation. 
They've been in Jerusalem for a number of days. They've come to worship. They've come to seek God's face. They are devout Jews, Acts 2.5 tells us. And yet there's this understanding all of a sudden that they're absolutely powerless in regards to their situation. Brothers, what shall we do? And so this Holy Spirit's conviction made these people see their personal accountability before God for what they have done and particularly for their rejection of Christ. Remember, Peter points out that very clearly in verse 36. This Jesus whom you crucified. This morning, you may be sitting back in your pew thinking, boy, I'm glad I wasn't there that day, 50 days before this when Jesus was crucified, so I'm off scot-free. The reality is that every single one of us put Jesus on the cross and we crucified him. They were under the conviction of the Spirit. Second thing I want you to see in this text, and that is the conversion of the sinner. So they ask the question, brothers, what shall we do? Peter responds in verse 38, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, in response to the gospel, they had to ask a question. And that's what has to happen in our lives. When we hear the gospel and God begins to open our hearts to the gospel message, our response always has to be, what do I need to do? What decision do I need to make? So Peter instructs them to do two things, repent and to be baptized. We say, what's repentance? Well, we talk about it a lot. I mentioned it last week. And so hopefully you know and understand repentance. It's simply a change of mind. It is simply a deliberate turning away from a previous conduct or a way of life to a new conduct and a new way of life. Biblically speaking, we could say it this way. It is when a person turns from their sin and they turn from their self and they turn to the Savior. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from sin and self to Jesus. In this repentance, in this turning away from sin and turning to Christ as Savior, there is a presupposition. It presupposes faith. It presupposes that you understand who Jesus is, what he's done on the cross, how he's won the, the victory for you as we've sung this morning. And in faith, you're turning from sin and self and you're turning to Jesus. That is what repentance is. So he instructed these Jews to repent. And to find forgiveness for sin in Christ. He also told them to be baptized. Well, we baptized too last, last Sunday. Uh, so we see baptizing quite, quite often around here. What is baptism? What is it all about? It's simply a public expression of an inward change. It, it is not the means of salvation. Don't miss that. Don't mistake that here in this text. I'm going to share a little bit more about that in just a moment. But baptism, we could understand it this way. It is the articulation of salvation in a person. It's not the means of salvation. It's not the way you come into relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the way you articulate the fact that you are in relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we discover here in the New Testament that conversion is always publicly Express. I love the fact that Jesus does not allow for closet Christians. Peter, likewise, because of that, does not allow for secret disciples. He calls for a public response, a public expression of conversion to Christ is what the Bible always calls us to do. And so with this, this concept of or the statement that Peter says to repent and to be baptized, it raises a real strong theological question that we have to answer this morning. If baptism is an articulation of salvation, if it's an inward or an outward expression of an inward change, then why does Peter say to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of your 
sins. Why does he seem to put it on the same level as repentance in his response? Let me answer it this way. I believe the reason that Peter does this is because of the uniqueness of the Jewish community for which he is speaking. See, Jews enjoyed a rich culture. They had a rich religious history. Even though they had been under the thumb of Rome for years, if not centuries at this point, and they subjugated to all of the things that Rome brought to them, they were still fiercely nationalistic. There was a, a large contingency that wanted for Rome to be overthrown and so that they could be free and, 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 and not under the control of Rome any longer. And so there was a strong nationalistic mindset here. And what's just taking place? The nation has rejected Jesus as Messiah. Fifty days earlier, Jesus has been placed upon the cross. He was crucified and, and, and killed for being a heretic. And so what is Peter doing? Peter's standing before devout Jews from all over the known world, and he says, I call you to place your faith in the one our nation has rejected. So what, is he, what do they need to do? They need to make a verbal and a strong statement of I'm moving from this to this. I'm moving away from Judaism to the church. I'm moving away from religion to relationship. I'm moving away from I can do it my way to I'm going to do it God's way. And so baptism is a public expression of what Jesus has done in a person's life. It does not bring forgiveness of sin, but it does express the fact that sins have been forgiven in your life. And so baptism is one's public confession, not in order to be saved, but in response to the salvation they have already received. We would do it this same way in cultures around the world. We were in South Asia just a few months ago, in October, some of us. And in that week or so that we were there, we had a few people baptized. And so we did it publicly in a, in a culture that's pretty hostile to the gospel many times and many ways. And so we are asking people, Hindus especially, we're asking them to deny and to turn their backs on that, that concept, that, that way of living, that religious belief, and now to express publicly that I'm breaking from that way of thinking to a new way th of thinking through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we didn't baptize them in closets. We didn't baptize them in closed bathrooms that had a bathtub. We went to a public place with a, I guess it was a pond. It was pretty nasty, and it had a snake swimming across the top of it. And Gloria was flipping out a little bit. But it was pretty funny to watch all that unfold. But we did it publicly. Why? Because we must be public with our faith. I spent too much time there. Let me go to the third thing. Third thing I want you to see here quickly. We see that there was a commitment of the saved. Verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Um, I, I love hard preaching. Not, not mean preaching. I love straight to the point. We're not going to hold back. We're going to give you the truth. We're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to scratch you where you think you itch, and that's why I love Peter. Even though he put his, mouth, his foot in his mouth, and I do that at times too, but what we see here with Peter is not a soft peddling of the gospel. It's straightforward. Let's cut to the chase. Here's what you need to do. Some might look at that and say, you know what? That's not the way you build a church in this culture, in this day. It's not going to yield the results you long for or desire, but I would take them to this text and say, let's just trust the Holy Spirit and see what God does when the gospel is laid before the people who need to hear it. And so 3,000 
people came to know Jesus. And what happened? They didn't just profess faith in Jesus to their, per, to their neighbor or whoever was sharing it with them. They went public with it. Public. They were baptized. What would that mean for a person in that culture? What would that mean? It probably would make it difficult for them. And so how did all this happen? Well, first of all, we see that they received his word. Uh, some of the translations may add the word gladly. The whole idea here is that they believed the gospel and received it with open arms. They welcomed it into their life. They stepped out of darkness into life. They understood that they were stepping out from the wrath of God into the grace of God. They were leaving sin and coming to Christ. They were leaving Judaism and, as I said earlier, coming to the church. And then they were baptized. This bold step would have led to persecution breaking out. It might have led to excommunication from families and friends. It more than likely would have also led to a removal from Jewish society, no longer being able to go into worship in certain places, in certain synagogues or even the temple. But what do they do here? They burn the ships. They burn the ships in their lives. We're not going back. I'm making a distinct mark in my life. It will not be changed. I am publicly declaring to the world, to my family, to my friends, to everyone, I am with Christ. The ships have been burned. I cannot return. That's what baptism is about. Their commitment here of these believers was strong. That's what has to happen in our lives. And so how do we connect with Christ? Let me give you a few things, and I'll land the plane. How do we connect with Christ? First of all, what we see in this text is God convicting the people through the gospel message that they were sinners. And so what does he do for us? As the gospel is shared, as the word of God is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God and begins to, uh, to point out to you that you're a sinner and you need Forgiveness, And so that leads you to a th second thing. You repent and put your trust in Christ alone for forgiveness of sin. That's what these are doing. Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. They repented and placed their faith in Jesus for forgiveness of sin. Thirdly, you, Jesus here gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what came upon them. Jesus was promised, or uh, Peter promised to them that the Holy Spirit would come when they placed their faith in Jesus. And then in response to this faith, you express salvation through baptism. Here in our church, really it should be any New Testament church, we believe every person needs to connect with Christ. No greater need in anyone's life than that. We also believe that every person needs to connect with Christ's local church. There's no such thing as lone rangerism when it comes to Christianity. There's no such thing as isolationism when it comes to Christianity. God Saves you individually, yes. You cannot ride your grandma's coattails into the kingdom of God. You cannot uh, uh, hope that, that because you uh, knew certain people or studied the Bible or any cer these certain things may lead you to that. No, it's a personal relationship that brings you to that. But then you need to connect with the family of God. For many people, this service particularly on Sunday morning, is the front door to our church. We have guests here this morning for the first time. This is your first step to connecting with perhaps this local church. This is an easy entry point for people to come in and, and, and kind of feel at ease and hear and kind of get the feel and the flow of who this church is and what we're about. We as a church, we want to live out our faith in, our, in the community. We want to share the gospel. We want to minister to the needs. We want the... We want the the Lord to give opportunities to see people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so we go to them. 
And so, as I said earlier, this is not like come and see, even though I think you should invite people to come with you to church. But we want to go and tell. But for most, this is their first entry into our, our church family. But then we want and believe you need to connect. We believe you need to connect. That means to go a little deeper. We're speaking here of membership. We believe membership is important because it fosters growth. It fosters uh, maturity in a person's life. Pastor, how does that happen? Why does membership foster maturity and growth in my spiritual life? Because when you're plugged in and you've got some skin in the game, that means there's an opportunity for you to be connected to people on a deeper level than just I'm here and I'm gone. I pop in and I pop out. I'm kind of here for maybe a week or two, and then I may not come back for six months. We believe you need to be involved in the family of God, this local church, because in that, when you have relationships with people, there's encouragement, there's accountability, there's opportunities to serve, all of those we need. And so we come to Christ and we come to the church in order to grow and to go. We're going to talk next week about growing and uh, we always talk about the necessity and the imperativeness of small groups. We don't want you to just stay in this room. We want you to go and connect with other people. Uh, I was talking with some guys yesterday, and I just made this statement, and I've made it before, that you really only can know 60 people in a church setting. So it doesn't matter if we have a church of 60 or a church of 600 or a church of 6,000. You're only going to know at most 60 people. And so every church has to have small groups so that you take the big crowd and you bring it down to smaller groups so that you have relationships rather than just, I know his face, I may know her name, and it's kind of awkward in the community when you pass each other because neither one of you really know much about the others. We want you to have relationships so that you can grow and then, as we're going to talk about in two Sundays, to go. So, I said earlier that I'm a manual guy. I believe it's important to know and to understand what the next steps are. Today, what's your next step? What is the next step you need to take in your spiritual journey? Perhaps for some in this room today, perhaps for some listening later this week or in a future time on our podcast, the next step for you is to come. See, the greatest need in your life is to come to the God who loves you and has created you for a relationship for himself. So today, the next step for you is to understand the gospel and his love for you and to respond in faith and repentance to Jesus. Response needs to be to come. For others, you're, uh, you've placed your faith in Jesus for forgiveness of sin, but for whatever reason, you've never taken that next step to publicly be baptized. And so uh, Peter said, repent and be baptized. And so you need to be baptized, not for the forgiveness of your sin, but, but to articulate the salvation that you have experienced in your life. And so you need to come and begin to get that process moving forward. Let's set a date and let's follow through and believer's baptism. And then maybe for others, your next step is to come to Christ Church. It's time to connect and become a member of our church. The way we do membership here is that when we have a response time in a moment, uh, I encourage you to come. Come if you need to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Come if you want to talk about baptism. Come if you want to join our church. But you need to know that we don't just turn you right around and say, Welcome to Red Lane, you're a member. We have a process, and so we will begin that process, and it's a healthy process where you begin to understand who we are, we can understand who you are, and we uh, come together and we talk about all the things that you need to know before you jump in to this family called Red Lane Baptist Church. And so this morning, perhaps, is the time that you need to take the next step and to begin the process of uniting with this fellowship. What is the next step for you?
Do you need to come to Christ? Do you need to be baptized? Do you need to come to Christ, church? Let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts and minds for our response. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in this passage we see the grace of God. The grace being extended and being offered to a people who just days before, weeks before, had stood in that crowd and screamed, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And yet, it was the love of God that held Jesus to the cross. It was the grace of God that remained on him so that we could be forgiven. Father, this morning as we think about this idea of coming to Christ and coming to Christ's church, it's the grace of God that allows us this opportunity. This morning in this room, perhaps there's a man, a, a woman, a teenager, perhaps even a child that are beginning to understand that the greatest need in their life is to know Christ and to be known by Christ. So Lord, I pray this morning faith over that person, over that individual, individuals. God, that you give them boldness and courage that they'd be willing to step out of their seat and come forward and talk with one of our encouragers this morning. Lord, I pray for those who need to be baptized that have never followed through in believers' baptisms. Or perhaps they were baptized earlier in their lives, but they never really came to know Christ, and then since then they have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Their baptism is not in the right order. God, I pray this morning that that, that would be something that you press upon their hearts that next step. God, I pray for those who need to join and unite with our fellowship. God, I'm so grateful for all the people you bring to us week in and week out. We just give you praise and glory for that. But Lord, we know you're not just, they're not just walking in here by chance. We believe the Holy Spirit that you're moving and, and leading people. So God, I pray that you would just press upon their hearts at the right time to unite to this local body. Lord, as we move into this time of response, open our hearts, open our minds, give us ears to hear.